I'm Holly Elmore. And I'm Alex Frieder. And this is the Turing Test, Harvard Effective Altruism student podcast, bringing new perspectives and fresh ideas on how to do the most good for the world. Our theme is the ideological Turing Test. Economist Brian Kaplan coined the term the ideological Turing Test in 2011, explaining that if someone can correctly explain a position but continue to disagree with it, that position is less likely to be correct. And if ability to correctly explain a position leads almost automatically to agreement with it, that position is more likely to be correct. So, Holly, who are we testing today? Leanne Pritchett is a professor of the practice of economic development at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He got his PhD in economics from MIT. After graduating, he worked at the World Bank for many years and was a contributor to the first Copenhagen Consensus, a project that seeks to establish priorities in addressing environmental problems. In 2006, he published Let Their People Come, Breaking the Gridlock on Global Labor Mobility, in which he argues that the most effective way the developed world can help impoverished countries is to allow for more low-skilled laborers to be guest workers. We talk about this and a whole lot more. We just found Lant to be a hoot, and we think you will too, even if you can't see his gesticulating and pantomiming. FYI, this is another delayed release. We did this interview two years ago, but that shouldn't make it any less fun. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. Uh, we usually start with uh, career decisions, uh, career affected careers is a big concern in effective altruism. But I was interested to find that you're from the Mormon community because uh, the Mormon community is a template for just good community living that a lot of EAs are interested in investigating. And so I just am wondering uh, if you have any insights from there, if you think that's affected your path. Uh, I know you went on a mission trip, and maybe that affected your your interest in development economics. Uh, a hundred percent. I knew from an early age I wanted to be an economist, even as a high school senior. I had an uncle who was a professional economist, so I kind of knew no. what it was. <laughs> <laughs> it's an unusual career it's choice an for unusual high school aspiration for <laughs> senior, but uh, my uncle was an economist. Uh, I had sort of read some popular economics, and the mindset appealed to me. And then I served a two-year mission in the north uh, west of Argentina, Mendoza, Salta, not in the city, and uh, saw a lot of things that definitely kind of increased my interest in the economics of development. At the time I was there from 1978 to 80, there was kind of interesting and unattractive politics. They were just emerging from a very bloody uh, kind of military repression of unrest <clears throat> that was really awful. Uh, there was hype inflation, and they were in the middle of trying to use the exchange rate to stop inflation, which created all kinds of price dynamics and exchange rate issues that, as an American citizen, you just never think about as a kid. No one, you know, you could go your whole life and not know there's an exchange rate growing up in Boise, Idaho, um, where I grew up. Um, and just the microeconomics, I mean, one of the things about being a Mormon missionary is you find rich people aren't very much interested in changing their religion for the most part. So you mostly mm-hmm. deal with people who are interested in changing their life or mostly people who are poor and have some issues in their life. And so as being kind of a quasi-clergy, I was actually much more, saw much more than any 19-year-old would see of people's lives and the problems they faced. And, you know, one example is one area I was lived in, you know, we worked in a slum. And it was near these um, grape fields that were used to produce wine. And so every morning, they would send a truck through the neighborhood with a loudspeaker 
that announced the price per bushel picked of grapes. It was all piece rate. And they would announce today's price is this. And it was tracing out a supply curve. Because mm. sometimes <laughs> the price was low and a few people get on the truck. And sometimes the price was high because the grapes were at right harvesting time. And everybody would get on the truck. Because at a piece rate, you can take your six-year-old. He picks a basket, he gets paid for a basket. And if the price is high, it's worth it. And so I saw people making like really hard-edged decisions about how to allocate their time based on the opportunities they faced in real time. So very influential on the fact that I became a development economist. I decided that economics was an interesting approach and that there was all, the most interesting was, you know, not the U.S. and, you know, 2% GDP fluctuation in the U.S. is how many additional VCRs or TVs and what the heck. But, you know, real hard-edged decisions are being made by people. And even in Argentina, which is a high-middle-income country, so it definitely set me on the path of being development economist. And how common is that uh, among development economists? Uh, and do you think there's a substitute for that kind of experience? I really don't. I think unless you have spent some time coping with living in a developing environment, you just have a hard time picturing decisions people are taking, what's really possible. Um, you know, uh, in our MPAD program that we run here at the Kennedy School, we look for development experience in part because we can't teach you that. We can't teach you what it's like to try and get things done in Nigeria or in Nepal or in Bolivia. And so I think that kind of experience is, is invaluable for thinking coherently about what it's really like to be developing economics. You know, I've lived two years in Argentina, I've lived two years in Indonesia, I've lived four years in India. I think all of those were, if I look at the periods of my life in which I learned the most, mm -hmm. it was always by living abroad rather than trying to think about it in the abstract from here. So, but then you got into thinking about it in the abstract uh, a bit more and uh, pursued a PhD uh, at MIT, is that right? Yeah. Uh, were, were there any influential advisors or people that uh, very much influenced your thinking, or were you already like so steeped in economics? That... Uh, you know, I learned I uh, I learned the fundamentals of economics fantastically well. I'm kind of the last generation to be trained by the first generation in some mm -hmm. sense. Paul Samuelson taught me. Oh. Frank Fisher taught me. You know, Bob Solow taught me. Mm -hmm. So I got the foundations of economics extremely well. At the time I was there, 1983 to 88, development economics was extraordinarily weak. Mm. Um, you know, there just weren't, in some sense, it wasn't a lively field at the time. So I, I don't really have any development economics. Mm. Uh, and Professor Richard Eckhouse was there. It was mm. nice. and was a congenial mentor, but I don't think I got a lot of powerful ideological or kind of motivational guidance out of being at So fantastic core grounding in economics and empirics and the method and the ideas by the you know, pioneers, but not so much development stuff. After doing your PhD, I understand you worked with the Copenhagen Consensus at some point? I did it at some point. I was quite a ways. I worked with it first in 2004. They kind of have repeated it a couple times. I've been part of it several times. Copenhagen Consensus shares uh, much of the methodology with uh, with the effective altruism movement, and it's often uh, yeah. uh, often mentioned as uh, a potential 
career path, uh, this kind of think think tank uh, lobby? My experience with the um, Copenhagen Consensus is interesting because it illustrates some of the things that are exactly right, I think, and some of the things that are exactly wrong about mm-hmm. that approach. So one of the things that's exactly right, I feel, about the Copenhagen Consensus is to try and force multi-sectoral comparisons. Mm-hmm. Mostly the struggle for resources is people with strong sectoral beliefs. I believe mm. that we really need to address corruption. I believe that we really need to address climate change. I believe that we really need to address child health by kind of single-sector advocates that kind of, for some reason, have formed a strong view about a particular topic. And it's kind of only economists that have the perspective of, well, there's trade-offs. We could work on climate change, or we could work on child health, or we could work on corruption. What are those trade-offs? That's not a natural approach, actually, to a lot of people, either intellectually or personally. They're much more committed to a topic than committed to... Particularly not a natural approach in philanthropy, which is what we're trying to bring to bear. Yeah. I mean, it's not a very natural approach. I mean, after all, most organizations kind of, like Soren Kierkegaard has a book, you know, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. Most effective organizations are effective because they kind of focus on one thing and do one thing well. So joining the organization is signing up for, you know, a mission. Uh, you know, having a vision and mission is an important part of organizational success. So organizations, very few organizations tend to, again, think, should we do this or should we do that, except as means to an accepted end. The World Bank is one of those organizations. The World Bank is a big tent in which... You know, there's people in the World Bank that do every aspect of development, and so the World Bank is one of those places where the fights of intersectoral alley have to happen. We have to prioritize among a variety of things, and I was at the World Bank when I was working on the Copenhagen Consensus. So that's one thing about the, the Copenhagen Consensus approach has that exactly right. Can I tell you what they have exactly wrong? Please. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so I get this approach, and they say, we'll pay you X thousand dollars to write a paper on, you know, what are good interventions um, in education. Like, okay, that's that's a good challenge. The problem is, is that, you know, there are like opportunities to spend money, right? Like what would be the most cost-effective way to spend money on education so we can compare it to the most cost-effective way to spend money? The difficulty is, is that the intervention approach, I can show you interventions in education that are infinitely cost-effective because they're cost-reducing and quality-of-learning-enhancing. What would be some, some examples? Uh, well, for instance, Michael Kramer from the Harvard Economics Department has a paper with Esther Flow and I think Pascaline Dupas on, you know, they went in and did a randomized experiment as they do these days. And I'm just using this because I'll come back and <laughs> tease them about that later. But, and this is a perfect example, is they find that if you hire contract teachers that you can hire at a fraction of the wage of civil service teachers, <laughs> but make the contract teachers contract renewable, at the decision of people who are actually observing the quality of what you're doing, like the parents and students, that you get higher learning performance and much lower cost. So if you do that cost-effective calculus, that's infinite because you've gotten better performance out of less cost, right? So infinity's cool, right? But at the same time, infinity's stupid. Because if it's infinity, then any trained economist has to say, why aren't they doing it already? There's this infinitely cost-effective intervention. My role is to recommend that you do something that's infinitely cost-effective. That can't make any sense because <laughs> it can't be that you kind of haven't noticed that this is infinitely cost-effective. 
and precisely about contract teachers, you know, the very program that they did the RCT about, when the government tried to replicate it, A, they couldn't politically because teachers went on strike at the hiring of contract teachers at lower wages and not in the official civil service. The people hi being hired as contractors themselves sued you in the courts because, oh, you're asking for equal pay for unequal work. It's illegal for you to ask us to do this. And C, didn't have the effect that they found in the RCT. So the RCT's impact on learning wasn't replicable when the government scaled it. So to some extent, what Copenhagen Consensus wanted me to say is we could cost-effectively spend money on co contract teachers, which on one level is true if, in fact, you could implement it. But you can't implement it because mm -hmm. the reason they're not spending money in that infinitely cost-effect is that there's no political will or pressure to do so. So then what's an opportunity? Is contract teachers an opportunity or not an opportunity? And my take is it's not an opportunity. If you can't do it saying that if you could do it, it would be terrific. Yeah. If I had wings and could fly, flying would be terrific. I have an opportunity to fly. No, I don't have an opportunity to fly because I don't, in fact, have wings, can't fly, fly. So that's precise. And so I wrote this out for the Copenhagen Consensus. I said, look, I can make a list of cost-effective things, but when I make that list, what you will realize is that there's a deeper anti-learning politics going on. The whole game is kind of silly. Mm -hmm. They, needless to say, a kind of strong exception to my pointing out that the meta game they were playing wasn't really good. So we had a fight. <laughs> they were like, well, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to publish this chapter. And I'm like, well, <laughs> fine. Uh, I would rather not take your money and mm. then, you know, then do what you want me to do, which is order in order things by their apparent intervention cost effectiveness independently of whether they can be politically adopted and implemented. So that started a fight in 2004 that I've been fighting for the next 15 years because I think this is precisely the confusion that arises around effective altruism, apparently cost effective. If so, it's kind of dumb. It's not going to happen, right? Um, is it about worrying about what's wrong with the system of education, such that they're not already doing it, then it's smart, but that's much squishier and it's not like a neatly philanthropically fundable linear thing. So, long answer. All right, to wrap up this section, then, uh, it, you just made it the most perfect setup for it. Um, we'd like to ask you to compare what you think your relative impact has been in the academia, World Bank, Copenhagen Consensus, and then any other uh, venues you've worked in. And have you seen a similar pattern in the World Bank um, as, as in the Copenhagen Consensus? Wow, that's like a super hard question. I think there's two different ways um, one has impact as a kind of, and mostly whether I was in the World Bank or here, I'm, I'm mostly a researcher type. You know, mm -hmm. Even within the World Bank, most of my career in the World Bank was researchy. Mm -hmm. I did some stints where I was actually grinding out loans and stuff, but mostly researchy. So there's two things, right? And again, this gets to a big tension. One is affecting the conceptual direction, right? right? Mm -hmm. So when I first went to World Bank, I worked in a unit which we proudly referred to ourselves as the Hezbollah of free trade, <laughs> right? We were about free trade. And if you ask us, when should you have free trade? Now. And if you ask, <laughs> how should you have free trade? It's like in every way possible. <laughs> and how should we promote it? So we were the Hezbollah of free trade. And by the way, this was in the mid-80s, early 90s. We were radically effective. You know, whatever people say about the climb back to protection, 
like the world is night and day about its belief and practices about the free trade as a development strategy where it was in the 1980s when I started in this field. So we swept the field. But now more or less there's a default that kind of open border, you know, not open borders per se, but kind of outward oriented strategies towards development are unambiguously the right thing to do, which was not at all the consensus in the mid-80s. So influence, we had massive influence as a movement and as a conceptual thing. You know, was the effectiveness the designing of specific trade reforms or the designing of a specific like, No, no, the effect was it became the gestalt, the zeitgeist, that we're going to kind of move towards more outward-oriented strategies, and then countries did that in a variety of ways. So it was less, I recommended this program and it was adopted. It was more, I was part of Team Free Trade, and we were changing the zeitgeist about free trade. Um, another example, I was part of a report that I worked on with David Dollar and the World Bank about foreign aid, and at the time, the debate was about conditionality, because the World Bank was, you know, imposing or imposing all these structural adjustment loans that gave countries money in return for reform, and kind of we were, hadn't worked. <laughs> um, turns out, our rough conclusion was the Beatles were right, money can't buy you love, um, and so we could buy commitments to reforms, but couldn't buy real commitment and implementation of reforms. So we proposed in this, in our book, we sort of said, look, what we really should do is focus on selectivity. Rather than go to countries and say, we'll give you money if you do good things, we should go find countries doing good things and get them money. So mm -hmm. the shift from conditionality, selectivity, as a modality of saying, aid is going to work where governments are kind of pushing, where you're pushing on an open door, governments are doing good things. So that motto became massively popular. Right? I mean, at one set of aid meetings, the head of the World Bank, the head of the UN, and the U.S. president all use the selectivity versus conditionality rhetoric. Like, that's affecting, in one way, that's affecting the world. And then if you say, well, what were the policies that resulted from that? Well, it was a whole array of things, but the mindset shifted from conditionality to selectivity pretty effectively for a pretty long time. So, as opposed to, you know, the more micro, you know, affecting beliefs about specific things of the type you could point to a given single piece of work and say this paper introduced this idea, which, you know, I've done some of, but in the end that's less influential than affecting the zeitgeist, creating a presumption that we're going to move towards free trade, or a presumption we're moving towards selectivity, after which individuals and organizations were, how do we make that happen in reality? This is so interesting because this is I so on a small scale I'm the president of the university wide advisory group at Harvard mm. and I often wonder we don't we have some feedback and some metrics but I often wonder whether I should be focusing on just you know working on a gestalt kind of setting norms and getting the idea out there pushing on people's idea of like how much is reasonable to donate of your income that sort of thing versus and the whole movement has this question versus actual things that we implement and things, and but those are the things we have to track and, you know, to kind of be true to our methods. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you want a little bit, but to be honest, you want a little bit of both, mm. right? Um, and if you get too much into effective altruism is in favor of deworming, mm -hmm. like, no, that's goofy, and that, that's a fad, that's not that big a deal. No, I'd love to hear more about that. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> For the audience, Whereas, there was a dramatic eye roll. <laughs> um, and wave of the hand. Whereas, the fundamental idea of effective altruism that, say, you know, insisting that you be involved for your own personal gratification is kind of ineffective and offensive. That's kind of a deep core principle that extends to a lot of things. And again, the idea of effective altruism that you should actually care about outcomes, that's a gestalt kind of thing that the movement can be really effective at. But to some extent, it's hard for a movement to sustain itself without something for people to do. Right? So you want to maintain, so go back to free trade. You could be part of team free trade and working on the gestalt, but at the same time, countries would come and say, oh, well, we have this tariff regime and we want to move that tariff. Or you, you, know, you could say that countries have this tariff regime, do a calculation of the rate of effective protection that this results in. To be honest, nobody really gave a hoot about the results of that, it, but it gave people who were part of team free trade something to do. It created discussion of why these tariff things are screwing your economy up. The specific details, I don't think anybody remembers, but the fact of the doing them was important. I think people get confused about that, in particular around effective altruism. And this is, it's like the fact of the doing it was kind of part of being part of the movement, mm -hmm. as well as the gestalt. And maintaining the gestalt without action is very hard, actually. So one of the things that is uh, a deep part of the gestalt of effective altruism is focus on uh, empirical, uh, empirically proven interventions, and in particular on randomized controlled trials. And Perhaps listeners already took a hint that you're not the biggest fan in development economics uh, of uh, this approach. Uh, so could you explain why that is? Not the biggest fan is like an enormously polite circumstance. <laughs> <laughs> Make it clear in an auditory way how you feel. <laughs> I think it's just been massively, massively misguided. In part because the movement's been right about one thing and wrong about everything else. So... What's it been right about? Well, it is right that, on average, people paid too little attention to having a carefully controlled counterfactual to know what worked. So the fundamental idea that to identify causal impacts, we need something like randomization and the usual ways of starting with observational data and working with causal impacts have were just fraught with enormous and probably super obstacles. They were right about. But the mapping from that insight to actual action and development, every step of it's wrong. So let me go through four steps that are wrong. First, external validity. What people haven't realized is that external validity, if you start with heterogeneous impacts of, heterogeneous estimates of impact, if some, if we have, so take a field I know about education, there were a variety of estimates of the impact of class size. And they were massively heterogeneous. Sometimes reducing class size seemed to be effective. Sometimes it seemed to be ineffective. Most most of the data suggested very small effects, less than cost-effective approach. Right? Faced with that heterogeneity, external validity was like logically impossible from the start. There was no possibility of there being external validity. It wasn't that we had to wait for the evidence to know whether there could be external validity. We know they couldn't. Why? Because these heterogeneous estimates could be decomposed into a true-in-the-context impact of causal impact and the bias. Both of those features are the result of deep structural parameters about the world. External validity would mean all of the deep structural parameters about the world are roughly the same. If that were true, we wouldn't have had their heterogeneity 
of impacts in the first place. So if we say, gee, we don't know about the impact of class size which is a heterogeneous thing from observational estimates, let's do an RCT. The RCT does you zero good. There is no coherent and logically consistent way to infer anything about other than the exact precise context in which the RCT was done, anything about the effect of class size in any of the other contexts. Just impossible. So they're wrong about external validity. There's not going to be, there, there can't be external validity, which means it's a good thing that there isn't external validity. <laughs> right? So it's a good thing that once we had a lot of randomized estimates, they're roughly reproducing the, the heterogeneity <laughs> that we saw in the non-experimental estimates, which means any given estimate has no scope. Like how, how I, you, you know, it's like drilling wells. I drilled a well and I found water at exactly 10.3 feet deep. <laughs> Great. Uh, what would that tell me about drilling a well any place else in the world? And like absolutely nothing without a theory of hydrology. So they're wrong about external validity. B. It's wrong about a concept that I've created called design fragility. Right? So the problem is, is they're like, these RCTs are being reported and discussed on the level of, I gave medicine and people got better. Whereas, in fact, if you want to do a drug trial, it's like a specific chemical given in specific conditions in response to specific diagnostic indicators. That's the impact, right? And, but whereas, so just take the example again from education, teacher training. People do all kinds of impact evaluations of teacher training as if teacher training is a thing. Teacher training is a class of things. And, you know, a kind of important point that hasn't been realized yet or is, look, imagine the response surface. I've got a design space. And the design space is all the different ways I could do teacher training. And then each of those is going to have an ultimate impact on student learning. Right? If that design space is rugged, meaning some ways of doing teacher training have big impacts and others have small impacts, then doing an evaluation of a randomly chosen element of the teacher training design space and reporting its results, even within a given context, forget external validity across context, it may well be that you just landed on a super deep valley in Himalayas, but nearby in the design space, if you just changed your teacher training program by a small bit, it would actually be super effective. So again, the RCT approach which tends to explore relatively few treatment arms over a relatively long time scale is exactly the wrong approach to getting to effective teacher training or effective action in most areas in which we're working, which require a systematic learning about the design space by what we call in PDIA crawling the design space. So the idea that these RCTs are providing reliable information about program impacts is false because they're not taking into account how sensitive impacts are to the variation in program design. And the current studies, again, uh, people just did a study of, like, what's the systematic review of the rigorous evidence about teacher training? What they found was when, when we created a minimal vocabulary of what it would take to know what a teacher training program was in the way that I know what this particular antibiotic is, they could only recover from the published literature about these RCTs half of the information they even needed to know what they did, 
Like, they didn't specify key elements of what the teacher training was. <laughs> That's just not leading anywhere, right? We could, we could futz around. And the deep point is, once we conceptualize a broad design, a design space, all the different things we could possibly do, and a rugged, a fitness function that might be rugged over that design space, we know for sure there's lots of flat bits, right? There's got to be a way to do teacher training that won't work. Yeah. Matter of fact, there got to be lots of ways to do <laughs> teacher training that won't work. So what we now have is we now have four rigorous randomized trials that tell us giving kids textbooks when they didn't have textbooks before doesn't increase their learning. What does that tell me? It tells me there are dumb ways to give textbooks. <laughs> but I knew that! Like, I didn't need, like, Two million dollars and a world genius economist to tell me there's there might be a dumb way of doing this, and it's a weird perverse pleasure that I've discovered a dumb way to do something. <laughs> really? Because like you're like making a big deal that you found a flat spot in you the just, fitness function. You just narrowed the design space. Exactly, <laughs> in all of the design space, you found a flat spot. Well, okay, you know that's not proof that all that there's no mountain. That's just proof that you're on a plane. Right, if you think of impact yeah. as the right, um, but if you want me to therefore believe, and by the way, four rigorous randomization of textbooks all finding no impact on the average student, do you want to go to the education literature and say, by the way, textbooks don't matter? Do I go to you as a parent and say, don't worry if your school your kid is in has textbooks or not? That's crazy, <laughs> right? So audience should note that he moved to the <laughs> in a way that denotes yeah. crazy. Um, so again, the idea that in an atheoretic way, we can just stumble around in the developing world and discover stuff, and then it's just, again, goofy. Um, third thing, right, is they're, they're making deep and important mistakes about normative and positive. Again, go to education economics. Go back to the example contract teachers, right? What does it mean to recommend that you adopt a, you know, a program of contract teachers? Usually, we use, you know, if this is a, we, we say, usually when we say recommend, we say, I understand your objectives. I understand what you're trying to accomplish. And here's a better way of accomplishing what you're trying to accomplish. But for something that's infinitely cost-effective, an economist can't coherently believe our normative, you know, our normative model is if they were maximizing their objective function, they wouldn't have let infinitely cost-effective options be left on the table, right? I mean, the joke about economists is there can't be a $100 bill on the sidewalk because someone would already pick it up. So the RCT approach often goes around assuming that they're going to discover $100 bills on the sidewalk and recommend that people pick them up. Like, that's just not a coherent use of normative and positive. So often what they do is have a finding that refutes that the person is, in fact, optimizing and then say, if you are optimizing, you should do this. Again, I hate to repeat the word, that's goofy. Like, it's sort of like saying, you know, you know you're know, you in Boston, you want to get to Maine. You're in Boston, you want to go to Albany, and I want you to go to Maine. Well, then you're going to start driving west, because Albany is due west of here, and I'm going to say, oh, no, 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 I recommend you drive north. Well, I can't get to Albany by driving north. No, no, but I think you should go to Maine. Well, that's not a recommendation, right? That's, I disagree with your objective function. So the problem is if we actually model what policymakers and politicians are actually doing, 
then we have to, at least in principle, have a way of recommending things that's consistent with how we anticipate they will behave. But just recommending that they have different objective functions has not been the traditional role of economists. Are you saying so, that for instrumental reasons, we just need to go, we need to work with what policymakers already want? Mm -hmm. Or should we not point out that if you really did want this, Again, this way? Again, you can point that out if it's part of a coherent strategy of then how would I reorient the work? So what I want to work on and what I am working on in the education sphere is systems. How does the system work as a system? If I want to use the fact that there's infinitely cost-effective things as a way of pounding on the fact that the system's maladapted, and how would I change the system so that it would be adopted, that's a coherent approach. But to act as if my coherent approach is to do an experiment, and the recommend, you know, the policy recommendation of my experiment is do what my experiment shows is effective. If you were to happen, the objective function that you had that you clearly don't have by the fact that you're not already doing what I've done in my experiment. It's just again, it's just not a coherent mindset. I mean, just amazed that otherwise really brilliant economists have fallen into this mindset. So J-PAL has a table showing the relative cost effectiveness of various interventions that refutes the notion that people are optimizing across the effectiveness of cost of interventions, on which they claim this is a table that guides policy recommendations. That's a logically incoherent stance about how policy recommendations work. That's the third mistake. So, 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 to, so to play a devil's advocate here, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, step in. Uh, I have a so, fourth thing, but we'll get back to it. Yeah, uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll get back to it. So, so what if uh, the government actors are uh, simply prone to status quo bias or, or like other um, forms of uh, deviations from rash, uh, economic rationality that prevent them from exploring enough uh, in, in the landscape. That's possible, but then posit that as a positive theory. Show us that that really is an excellent description. Mm -hmm. So let me let me just give you a specific example. So you know, 20 years ago, the co-author and I took the estimates of cost effectiveness of various interventions in basic education around the developing world. And we kind of showed to our satisfaction, and I think anybody reasonable-minded person satisfaction, that kind of there was this enormous characterization that inputs that kind of directly affected the utility of teachers, like wages, class sizes, conditions, tended to have vastly lower marginal product per dollar than things that didn't affect the teacher's utility function, like books, tables, desks. That would suggest, this isn't a heuristic bias that we don't happen to be exploring the design space, it would suggest that kind of teachers lobby really hard and effectively in books don't <laughs> right? So then, if that in fact is my correct positive model, then I can't go and find a non-teacher utility enhancing high productivity thing and recommend you do it without saying, how am I going to change the underlying political calculus between teachers and non-teaching inputs? So you have to move one step up. So, again, it's possible that policymakers just have heuristic biases or blah, 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 but you have to assert that. You have to say, what's my positive model of policy adoption that's consistent with the notion that the production of rigorous evidence is, in fact, in a coherent, plausible, positive description of policy, the key in inhibitor to effective policy? They, they haven't even like taken the first steps to meeting this challenge. But you can't claim, you're, you can't go to people and take money and say, I'm going to take money, I'm going to do rigorous research, and that's going to translate into 
better outcomes in the world without a positive model of how research translates into outcomes. Mm -hmm. And if it's about public policy, that has to be a political model. And they're not even on the first stage of meeting that requirement. It's just pure advocacy. Oh, because it's more rigorous, it will have more influence in the political sphere. Like, what? <laughs> um, I mean, that's just like <laughs> surreal as an expression of how political we, 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 we should have done a video of this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So, fourth point. And the fourth point is related but different, but importantly. Um, the third thing is that anything that has to be done, more or less, has to be done by an organization, right? Organizations, again, coming back to this, have kind of a vision mission mandate. This is kind of what we do, right? You can't, whereas effective altruism. A bit assumes, and this is true of maybe philanthropists who have this, gee, I'm willing to do what's ever effective you, but you still have to think, how do I mediate that through organizations, mm -hmm. right? So a lot of what the RCTs are doing are things that just organizations can't do. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine going to the Pope and saying, you know, uh, <clears throat> we want to do a randomized controlled trial experiment that will prove with scientific validity and rigor that anyone will accept whether intercessory prayer is effective. And the Pope would say, uh, no, <laughs> we're not going to do that. Kind of built into the core of our mission and mandate of the Catholic Church is a belief in prayer and intercessory prayer. We're not open to test that because we're not open to implementing the consequences of it. But if you go to the Pope and say, you can either do bingo on Tuesdays or bingo on Thursdays, and what would increase the attendance of parishioners on Sundays? It's like, wow, that's an interesting question. Let's do an RCT, right? <laughs> Have these parishes do Tuesdays, these parishes do Thursdays. So again, I don't think they've been at all organizationally realistic about how organizations actually learn, change, and adapt. Pretty sure the way most organizations learn, change, and adapt is not that some smart people parachute in on them with ideas that they have, do a rigorous study, and everybody doing it goes, oh, should I have a VA? I'll do what you're telling me to do. So, again, it has yet, it's starting to be, but its first generation of the RCT movement was completely out of touch with a organizationally realistic <laughs> way in which organizations get better at what they're doing and the way in which organizations choose what to do. Most organizations actually have a pretty limited sphere of what they're going to do and a, actually a pretty limited sphere of ways they're going to do it. You can be crawl the design space in this, I mean, what has yet to be realized is the space of the design, the contours of the design space that are realistically available to any organization are limited. And yeah. let's help them explore the part of the design space they're going to work on, or let's find a different organization or something. But this is true, by the way, even in the private sector. Private sector firms go bankrupt. Like, why do private sector firms go bankrupt? Why can't they just do something new when prices or opportunities change? And it's because, you know, organizations eventually acquire a DNA that's really not easy to change. I mean, you know, you don't order anything by and large. from You order stuff from Amazon.com, not Sears.com. Even though Sears was like massive first mover into the technological frontier of mail order. But never could make the transition from mail order to physical stores to online. And so they get destroyed. And it was because it was in Sears' DNA that they couldn't. They couldn't, you know, even if people come to them and say, you really have to get into this space or you're going to die, they die. They don't get into that space. So it's hard, even unconstrained of being a public sector organization or a, a 
So those are the four things. So they get one thing right, four things wrong. That strikes me as not a promising thing, but a disaster. I have one more piece of pushback to offer. It's just interesting to me because I, I totally hear that view right. um, about, you know, considering why this hasn't already been adapted and, you know, like if there was $100 on the street, then, but sometimes there is $100 on the street. And, and particularly in public health interventions, yeah. there are just magical, it seems like, cures to ignorance. And that doesn't create the political will, but just the knowledge that, you know, like bloodletting will not cure this disease, well, this absolutely. drug will, you know, is... Uh, absolutely, but... But then it's like, look, on the technological side, uh, then, but then the question is, why are economists doing this? I mean, again, this is not a question for effective altruism, but yeah, if effective altruism, you know, we're searching for a malaria vaccine, that, you know, large disease that for a variety of reasons of endogeneity of market size, it's not going to be researched by big pharma, but, you know, with an advanced purchase commitment, we could do it. That's great. Then you still have to worry about how we search and what we search. But again, the, the second point, though, is that this ignorance view is a very popular view, but usually not among economists, because among economists, knowledge itself is endogenous. If I go to somebody and start asking you about Red Sox scores in 1975, uh, I didn't know anything about <laughs> you might say, oh, I have no idea about Red Sox scores in 1975, and I'm oh my gosh, you're so ignorant about Red Sox scores, I need a program to improve your knowledge of Red Sox scores. <laughs> Like, no, I don't know Red Sox scores because I really don't care about the Red Sox and don't care to care about the Red Sox. So again, ignorance is endogenous. So the fact that there's ignorance in the world doesn't in and of itself mean there's $100 bills and alleviating ignorance, mm -hmm. unless, again, you have some positive model as to why there's a $100 bill there. What's your theory of why this ignorance... If I may offer just a sketchy theory, which yeah, I think yeah. is what... Uh, right. I mean, I can't speak for the, all the development economists doing this, but um, in implicit, I think, in effective altruism is the idea that, like, look, we've made a lot of progress with science, we've made a lot of progress with, with technology, we have no reason to think that social technology needs to be any different. That... Oh, Jesus, that's so stupid. <laughs> well, tell me why. Oh. Well, um, it's harder for you guys because you're young. So... <laughs> Wait, here's, here's, no, no, here's the analogy. So, first of all, Moore's Law, as described by Moore starting in the 1960s, has produced something on the order of 10 to 100 billion fold improvement in what it measures, you know, IC capacity, which then leads to. So, let's say there's been a 10 billion fold increase in some components of technology. What I ask people is, do you think. Over that 40-year span in which we've had a 10 billion-fold increase in computing technology and bandwidth of all types, do you think marriages on average have gotten any better? Marriages today are better, more loving, more fulfilling, more likely to be stable than in 1965. doesn't seem that way. It doesn't seem, at least, uh, it doesn't seem like an exponential improvement. Yeah, so maybe there's been 10%, 20%, not even sure of that. The divorce rate. I wouldn't count on negative impacts. Exactly. Yeah. You, wouldn't on, you wouldn't count on being negative. So if I tell you I have one variable Y that's been stable for 40 years and one variable X that's improved by 10 billion fold, the odds that there's a powerful causal connection between X and Y are pretty small, X ante. There might be one, but hard to explain. You everything, everything that's Moore's Law amenable is in fact enormously better today. Right? So, by the way, relevant to you guys. But would that have made sense just, in 1900 to say that? Or 
No, no, but we're not in that 1900. I'm saying... But maybe we're not in this era of a new social technology. Again, if there were a new social technology that was going to be made available, you have to have this really particular view of the world <laughs> that there's this new social technology that's going to be made available by technological progress, but the first million-fold improvement didn't lead to that. And the first billion-fold improvement didn't lead to that, but somewhere there's this threshold where now technology what makes some new social... What are you saying is the many-fold improvement of social technology? No, 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 no. What I'm saying is we've got technology technology, and we've got social technology. I'm saying most of the problems of development are not technical problems. Okay. Nearly everyone who's worked in development for any length of time comes very quickly to the realization that these are social, human, political, structural problems that aren't, in fact, very amenable technology, except in narrow domains. And in the domains in which they're amenable to technology, things have gotten fantastically better. People do, in fact, have fantastically more access to cell phones than they had 20 years ago, because cell phones were, in fact, Moore's Law amenable. But when you say social technology, I would argue that most of what we mean by the word social are, or much of what we mean by the word social, are things that are not Moore's Law amenable, like marriage. And the idea that there's going to be some dramatic social technological progress that's going to make marriages a lot better, but we just haven't hit it yet, again, that's possible, but it kind of is up against the fact that it hasn't happened yet, and we have had, you know, ten orders of magnitude change in X and haven't had any change in Y. So I think a whole bunch of problems in the developing world just are not technical problems of the type to which technology is going to lead to a social technology, which is going to lead to improvement. And it's not at all obvious that RCTs are anything like exploring a social technology in a way that's... Again, if I think about a social technology, I want to think about how the system works as a system, not how I can go and tweak some individual intervention in the overall system. So RCTs are precisely not addressing the question of how to change a social system in a way that makes a social system more likely to pick up a $100 bill. So, but wouldn't you say looking at the system is kind of taking an engineering mindset to the system? No, no, no. You're an evolutionary biologist, you said? Yeah. Do you take an engineering mindset to evolutionary ecosystems? Yes, I think so. I mean, I don't know what you mean. I wouldn't think so. You mostly. I mean, I think a lot about adaptive landscapes is what I call the design phase, and natural selection is a hill climbing algorithm. Exactly. And um, that's a great analogy. That's exactly. And there are some reasons to. But that's not it. I wouldn't. I mean, again, I wouldn't call that an engineering mindset necessarily. Well, it's thinking in a technical way about a mechanistic way about how things work. But there's a difference between thinking mechanistically and thinking simplistically. Is that engineering? No, no, I'm I'm saying, so, just mechanistically versus simplistically. You drive a car, right? A car is an assembly of a number of different subsystems. You know, each of them has to work in order for the car to be effective. And without some theoretical diagnostic approach to a car, the idea that I'm going to, like, improve car operation by doing, randomly doing this and that to a car, just seems goofy. Like, it's like, oh... My car's not working very well. I'll go pull a spark plug, try and drive it, see if it works better. Then I'll plug that spark plug yeah, in. It's how genetics work, though. <laughs> Sometimes it's your only choice. I guess, from my perspective, it seems like that... Right, um, but it's not, yeah. by far and away not our only choice to do RCTs as a way <laughs> in which we're going to learn about how to do development better. 
And it's not a good choice. It's a bad choice. It's driven much more by the incentives and motivations of publishing papers than it is, in fact, by having an impact on the world. What's a better choice? Well, I mean, a, a better choice, it goes across a whole variety of fields, but a, <laughs> I think a better choice, A, is to focus on economic growth, right? Anything you want to happen to human beings, as an economist, you should focus on economic growth. Why? Because in Ec 101, you learn about the budget set. What happens? People are maximizing the utility subject to the budget set they have, what determines the budget set they have, the productivity they have, what determines the productivity they have. It's the overall productivity of the place they're in. If you're not working on increasing the productivity of the overall place people are in, you're not working on development in my mind. That overall productivity of the place you're in, there is no evidence that any RCT has going to, has, or will come anywhere close to playing anything like a decisive difference. So part of what drives me crazy about this discussion of using RCTs to like address poverty is that lots of countries have like near eliminated poverty in our lifetimes that we can observe with hard data. Well, uh, in none of them, in none of them did RCTs play any role in that. Vietnam has roughly eliminated absolute poverty. Indonesia has roughly eliminated absolute poverty. China has roughly eliminated absolute poverty. Again, you know, lots of countries. If you say, what role did RCT plays in Vietnam's elimination of poverty? Zero. What role did RCTs... For that matter, I lived in Indonesia at the end of a long period in which they had reduced poverty from well more than half of the population to 11% of the population before the crisis came and shot it back up. They literally didn't even have any social programs in that period. They didn't have any targeted social programs for poverty. So they eliminated poverty kind of to first order without poverty programs at all, much less evidence-based social programs. So, First of all, if you want to work on development, if you want to help human beings, economic growth is the way to do it. You should work on how to improve economic growth. Do we have an effective technology for how to encourage countries to do things for economic No, not at all. Do we know for sure what kind of research could that? No, not at all. That said, it's sort of like, this is classic drunk under the spotlight. It's like, look, I know for sure what's important in poverty reduction. It's economic growth. I know for sure doing an RCT won't help. So... In improving economic growth, yeah. uh, your big thing is uh, state capacity? I'm not is, sure is that's it? my big thing. Okay. But I think um, being, A, first of all, having a fundamental mindset of being more market-oriented and more outward-orientated has been a key to most countries that have been successful success. So mm -hmm. if you, I can tell you lots of episodes in which Vietnam changed its mind about how socialist should be versus how market-oriented and outward-oriented and had an enormous reduction in poverty. Indonesia's between 65 and after 65 had a fundamental change in how market-oriented, how artwork-oriented the economy was, massive reduction in poverty. China had a huge shift in policy from being non-market-oriented, not inward-oriented, to being market-oriented, outward-oriented, a huge reduction in poverty. Maybe that's not true of every country, but it's been true of a lot of countries, and it's been true of a lot of countries that have accounted, in fact, for most of the reduction in poverty. And, in fact, we're living in, like, the most rapid poverty reduction in the history of man. So the the weird thing about this is there's this whole movement about how do we reduce poverty that seems to ignore the fact that poverty is being really rapidly reduced. Not by anything they're doing or saying, by the way, completely orthogonally. So you would think they would get on board with the train of poverty reduction as opposed to saying, hmm, let's take for granted uh, you know, that economic growth does or does not happen for reasons we don't understand and we're not going to try and understand and then work on conditional on economic growth, how much difference I can make. So as an individual on the margin, what can I do to enhance economic growth in developing countries? I think at the margin you could you <laughs> at the margin 
you should be interested in promoting that that's the question and doing something about that question. But And here's a metaphor I just came up with the other day, right? Mostly the world changes because we assemble a pile of gravel. It's sort of like, if you look at a pile of gravel, it's a pretty unimpressive thing. And if you pick up any one rock in that pile of gravel, it's a very unimpressive thing. It's a little piece of gravel, right? So I sometimes feel like people want to discover a diamond. But most of the way that I've seen the world change for the better is much more about this very patient accumulation of individually unimpressive things around a general theme. So most papers that were written about free trade were stupid, trivial, kind of boring papers, but they formed a mound that eventually kind of convinced people, like the government of India in the 1990s, to change from being inward-oriented to being outward-oriented by the mound of gravel. Whereas the RCT approach, like, wants to find a diamond and, like, change the world's mind with, like, oh, it's a diamond! Uh, it's like, unfortunately, most of us are going to produce some gravel, and most of what I produce is gravel. It's kind of individually pretty unimpressive, but it contributes to a mindset about important things like reorienting education systems from attendance to learning, or reorienting capability things from isomorphic memory to problem-driven, or reorienting economies from inward-oriented, outward-oriented, that have a general theme around which we kind of contribute a bunch of pile of gravel, and we change people's mind about the theme, and then they go off and do a whole bunch of things that I don't control and haven't dictated and haven't designed in any detail, but the, the zeitgeist has pushed them to discover a whole bunch of stuff. So, you know, Partly, and this is what I worry about this effective altruism movement, is they're actually pushing for more attribution than is appropriate or reasonable. Like, I want to be the one that funds the diamond. I want to be the one that, as opposed to being happy to be part of a pile of gravel. And if you ask me, what can I personally do? By God, be part, be a useful piece of gravel and a big mound of gravel that's roughly moving in the right direction, rather than asking, how can I be the one that funds the specific thing or the one that discovers? You know, Do you I, think margin thinking is kind of contributing to that? What? No, exactly. I think I worry that, and, and I, here's a example. The example is Allen Iverson. Allen Iverson is an NBA player. He's in the Hall of Fame. Right? There's a big debate. Because Allen Iverson is in the Hall of Fame because he was a scorer. He scored a lot of points. As people got more sophisticated about assessing individual impact, there was an argument that Allen Iverson shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. He was a roughly average player. In fact, wins above, you know, the first calculations of wins above replacement, Allen Iverson was an average player in wins above replacement. Why? Well, because a lot of the shots he took were really crappy shots. So if he's maximizing kind of points scored by Allen Iverson, he's going to take some crappy shots that he should have passed and his teammate should have taken it. So he wasn't being a team player in a team game. I think when you ask, what should I personally do to solve development? Uh, are you asking, like, <laughs> how do I maximize the praise and laud that I get by being a wonderful person? If you're asking that question, I want to help you because that's a bad it's question. It's surely not the normative VA position. I don't know about the Exactly. <laughs> Whereas, but, it, you know, and, you know, if you want to say, and again, the EA question of what can I maximally give a smallish amount of my income to that would, in fact, be effective for helping human beings, that's a great question to ask, right? But, but 
On the other hand, you want to make sure that EA, at the expense of answering that question, doesn't detract from the bigger question of how do we promote economic growth of a reasonably inclusive type in most poor countries in the world, which may not have anything to do with the individual fundable interventions. In fact, probably doesn't. Right. So I worry that there's this, I would call it the perils of partial attribution. You know, points scored by an individual NBA player is a concrete indicator. You can see it, you can touch it, you can get into the Hall of Fame with it. Whereas, I, you know, my point is, team development, you know, if you look at the people that have self-consciously promoted as a movement development since, you know, the aftermath, of, you know, in the Pax Americana that followed World War II, the last 60 years have been the best years for human well-being improvement in the history of man, by a factor multiple, in every dimension. Health, education, freedom, <laughs> economics, everything. And then, you know, you could come along and say, oh, but we don't know what role that program played, and we don't know what role... And this is sort of like... But you want to start from the fact that it's been wildly successful, right? In the way that, if I'm assessing Bill Russell, and everybody in Boston should know who Bill Russell is, he was the key part of an 11 championship run of the Boston Celtics. You can start from the fact... I'm European. Okay, I know. That's why, I'm, that's why I said that at all. Like, if you weren't European, I would be, this is too embarrassing to say. <laughs> but, but you should start from any discussion of Bill Russell, not with how many points he scored or how many rebounds he got, but you should start with Bill Russell won 11 championships, or maybe nine, I think nine or 11 I think the team won 11 in that period. I think he was maybe part of all 11, but at least nine of them. And then you can say, hmm, how much did Bill Russell contribute to this team's success? It's an interesting question. But let's start with the fact that kind of he won nine championships. The odds that he didn't have any role in that is like pretty slim. So anyway, so when you come back to what can I do at the margin, make sure you're part of the pile of gravel. Pay a little bit of attention to like, am we discovering the diamond? Because it's unlikely that the real success is discovering the diamond versus assembling the pile of gravel that changes the zeitgeist around. Should we have, you know, our orientation? Should we have, you know, state capabilities? Should we have broader, better a focus on learning in multiple dimensions as opposed to the individual intervention? Um, yeah. So let's let's address one for missing pile of gravel, uh, which is international migration. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So so you wrote uh, a paper that's uh, got uh, a bit of a cult following in the open borders movement with uh, Clemens and uh, Montenegro yeah. uh, on the place premium. Could you just briefly explain what the concept is and what was uh, relevance is? Yeah, so the, so the basic concept is, the basic idea is, look, we have individuals who were born in Guatemala, educated in Guatemala, working in Guatemala, and we have people born in Guatemala, educated in Guatemala, working in the U.S., by comparing those two things, we have some idea of how much gain there would be of just moving an equal productivity person from Guatemala to the U.S., and we estimate that. And that's the place premium. And what you find, kind of embarrassingly enough for development, is you know, allowing a Guatemalan or a Haitian or a Nigerian to move from where they are to a rich country is orders of magnitude the best thing you can do for poverty. Like, orders and orders of magnitude. So... The RCT types have this latest science paper with the ultra-poor graduation program. The net impact across the five countries they stop is like $340 a year. $340 a year per household benefited from this program, right? which, by the way, costs 
thousand in cost to get them to a hopefully sustained income stream of three hundred forty-four dollars. The wage gap between that person working in the country they're in and the United States is eleven thousand dollars a year, and roughly reliably, pretty much anyone who's allowed to migrate is going to make orders of magnitude more money. So the place. So first of all, mostly people are worried about poverty. Mostly the world is not consists of poor people. Mostly the world consists of people trapped in poor places, um, and hence just it's just a fact that far and away the most effective poverty intervention is to allow people to get out of a poor place into a rich place because a rich place kind of has the overall productivity environment in which their labor can be used well. And since labor is the asset that most poor people have, if they can't use it well, they can't get rich. Now, something like 80% of all Haitians who aren't poor live in the United States. So if you say, how can I, you the question, how can I make Haitians not poor in Haiti? It's a pretty tough question. They've been at it for a long time, tried a lot of things, and in spite of the global successes of their development, you know, they fought its failure in one of them's Haiti. If you want to say, how do I make a Haitian not poor? <laughs> the answer to that's super easy. Let them come work in the United States. As far as the price premium, do we have like, get a sense of how much of it is uh, productivity increase and how much of it is just uh, being um, at a minimum wage level that is uh, still several times uh, more than what they would earn back home? It's a hundred. Uh, if I heard the question right, it's a hundred. It's a hundred. It's roughly a hundred percent productivity. Yeah, Meaning, you could you could have been asking the very sophisticated question <laughs> that. Let's choose to believe that. What? <laughs> let's choose to. Let's choose to believe you asked the very. So there are two different questions you could be asking. One: How much of this is productivity increase versus how much of this is selectivity of the migrants? People who move happen to be more productive. We've gone around and around that question a million times, and roughly of the. $15,000 a year gain, maybe $2,000 of it is selectivity, so the completely non-marginal, and that's not even clear that's the right question, but choosing a person at random and moving would cost $12,000 in gain versus $344. So selectivity plays some, but a marginal role, we've handled it completely, you know, a huge variety of ways, and we know that's not any part, you know, if you say, is it 100% of the story or 0% of the story, it's down, bounded above by about 20% of the story and probably well less. Second sophisticated question you could have been asking is, countries in the U.S. have a minimum wage that might not reflect marginal productivity, and are they just coming and working at this distorted minimum wage? That's by and large not the issue, because by and large, even most of low-skilled migrants we look at make well more than the minimum wage. So the federal minimum wage is like $7.25, the earnings of our typical low-skilled migrant from these variety of developing countries is more like $10.50. So I don't think that they're benefiting from a regulatory distortion of the minimum wage. It's also a very sophisticated question. But it's also probably not mostly that. It's mostly that you drive a cab in Nigeria, you drive a cab in New York, you make more money driving a cab in New York because people are willing to pay more because it's just a more productive place overall. Given... Given the uh, current pushback against uh, migration, the resistance uh, mm -hmm. in in Europe and uh, and the U.S., do you think there are promising levers to increase migration? If I did and I knew them, I would be promoting them. So no, I'm nothing. I'm super confident of. I'm working on maybe two or diff three different ways of kind of working on the politics of it, mm -hmm. but. 
Nothing I'm super sure of. If I were super sure of a way of doing this, I would be doing it, right? Because <laughs> um, it's important. One thing, though, is it's hard to interpret social phenomena. And there's two ways of viewing the kind of current pushback against migration. One is kind of trend force that, you know, it's making it impossible in the future. And another is last gasp of a dying way of life and thought. Um, so there was a lot more noise around the civil rights in the 1960s than there had been in the 50s. Was that because civil rights were being defeated? No, it's because the enemies of civil rights were realizing they were taking their last stand, and once they got wiped out, they were wiped out forever. And it turns out they were wiped out, and they were wiped out forever, and there's no whatever people say. I was born in 1959. The world is night and day different with respect to race relations in the United States than it was in 1959, or what I remember about the early 1960s. So... A lot of noise around migration doesn't necessarily mean there's some fundamental shift. It could well be that forces that, in some sense, are worried about migration realize they're about to lose, and once they lose, it's loose forever. And my optimistic interpretation is most a lot of the noise about migration is people realizing, wait a second, we're about to cross a threshold from which there's no going back in terms of cosmopolitanism and equal rights and the way we treat foreigners. And we're at the threshold, and I think this noise is the noise of crossing the threshold that 20 years from now we'll look back and go, oh, yeah, that was the last gasp in the way that from the 1980s you look back at the, you know, bull guy meeting Martin Luther King on a bridge in Mississippi and say, that was the last gasp of a dying way of life, and it kind of died, and good riddance to it. Anyway, so, again, I'm not 100% confident that the interpretation that Marine Le Pen or nativist groups of the supporters of Trump represent the wave of the future as opposed to the last gasp of a dying past. I surely hope so. <laughs> it seems almost too optimistic, but... <laughs> Sometimes optimism's right. If you were optimistic, exactly. I think, about some parts of progress in the past, you would have been actually right. There's been a lot of progress. On the cheerful note, shall we transition to uh, the... Yeah. <laughs> okay. I go to go to test. Okay, so let's start with the Turing test. So oh. this season's theme is the ideological Turing test. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, this is where you try to pose as a member of the other side. So you right. want to present the Turing test. Or... Yeah. So uh, despite your um, support for uh, increased inter international migration, you're right. not an open borders guy. Right. Uh, you mentioned. So uh, could you first give uh, the like best possible case for fully open borders, and then give your reasons for why? why you don't so think, think that's a good idea? I think <laughs> the best possible case for open borders is that the 20th century has been, the 19th and 20th century has been a history of reductions of treating people more equally across a more variety of categories such that most of us today feel that it's fundamentally unjust to impose obligations or treat people differently because of way they were born, whether that's born woman, born black, born gay, born anything, more and more society has said it's our social and moral obligation to treat you equally on conditions of birth. The only exception to that currently is nationalism, and nationalism fundamentally at its core is an ideology that's no different than racism or sexism. It's, it's fundamentally irrational to think that because someone was born on this side of some politically arbitrary border on that side, it's it endows the world with a moral justice of treating them differently. 
And right now, today, the wage gaps between equally productivity people because one was born on the side of the border are orders of magnitude larger than it is for race, orders of magnitude larger than it is for gender. So huge movement around women making 87 cents of every dollar a man or 78 cents of every dollar a man. Nigerian men versus American men, that's two cents. And morally, why wouldn't you pay attention to that? It's just a condition of birth around which we're discriminating. It should go. That's the best case for open borders. I'm looking on my shelf at John Rawls' theory of justice. I have an extraordinarily time interpreting John Rawls' theory of justice, which is a powerful and compelling theory of like what is fair, as if we were all sitting in the pre-life and you were going to get born in Haiti and I was going to get born in the United States. Would you ever in a million years agree that I had a moral justification for keeping you out of the United States, even though it would improve your life a million fold to come? No way. No way would I see it as well. That's, I think, the best case. The best case against it is there is this sense of identity that's really important to people. And if, in fact, open borders were an existential threat to those identity claims, that's a legitimate cause for concern that has to be incorporated. So... You know, I'm friends with Angus Deaton, and Angus Deaton feels there's something important about the notion of being Scottish, and that Scottishness is something in the world that's valuable, and that you were to say to him, eliminating, you know, moving to open borders would destroy Scottishness, that's a value that needs to be importantly considered, and I think that's a pretty powerful and compelling thing, and I think I think that's a good argument that it's not pure discrimination. There really is something to Scottishness, and we can legitimately ask people that they acquire Scottishness if they want to live in an area that's controlled by Scots. And I don't know exactly how to reconcile those two views, but I think both of them are pretty compelling. Okay, another rapid question. Uh, would you point the audience to an interesting and underrated economist? Uh, it could be a PhD student or... Uh, someone who is not as well known and Justin Sandifer. Justin Sandifer works at the Center for Global Development, has a series of terrific papers, most of which are under authority as a terrific paper showing that the move to free private schooling in Kenya basically dramatically deteriorated parents' perception of the quality of schools, such that the net effect was people moved to private schools because they thought the new free public schools were going to be enough worse they would rather pay out of pocket to go to private schools using a very clever diffs and diffs identification because they didn't make secondary school free and they did make primary school free massive increase in private primary school not a massive increase in private Kenyan school he did the replication paper the contract teachers paper which is to my knowledge the only rigorous test of the rig claim that RCTs will have reliable impacts. Um, so they did an RCT about scaling up an RCT that found that the RCT, in fact, when scaled by the government, didn't work. And by the way, when it was scaled by the NGO, it worked exactly as it did in the test. So it's sort of like we have the perfect case. They did it in one part of Western Kenya with an NGO. It worked. When it was done by the government in Kenya, it didn't work. So that's another just incentive for paper. Just brilliant guy. I've written a couple of papers with him. Almost never had a co-author that was so much smarter than me. So, so I think, but I think he's underrecognized. Uh, speaking of underappreciated things, what do you think is the most underappreciated insight from economics that uh, other people could share, or even economists? So, uh, let me say one that's <laughs> universal and maybe 
sometimes particularly relevant to effective altruism, and I think effective altruism is on the side of it, just the fundamental concept of opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people during the heyday, you know, you know, I had several times I would bump into these people that were making a fortune on Wall Street and then quitting to contribute to working with, you know, creating women businesses in Nigeria. You'd just be like, go friggin' back to work. Like, make a million dollars and give it to people that are doing effective things rather than pissing around with women's organizations with a turnover of $20,000 a year. Like, your opportunity cost is a million dollars a year devoting this to making women's organizations with a turnover of $20,000 10% better. Uh, net value of the world, go friggin' back to work and do what you can do well. So I think opportunity costs just consistently people don't understand it, don't use it, don't apply it across their life. Um, so I think I'm with economics. <laughs> we have these fundamental insights of like comparative advantage versus absolute advantage of opportunity costs that just most people's decision making doesn't work that way. Why doesn't the system work that way? That's a good question. Presumably, I, if they actually want to do good, then they would have done that, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's an infinitely cost-effective um, But, again, uh, about that bias, I can be more clear. Yeah, that's a good question. I think ignorance. Individual agents. <laughs> what? Ignorance, perhaps? <laughs> Heuristic biases? I mean, I'm all for that at the individual level of behavioral stuff. It's just... This is why, again, as an economist, I'm worried about the systemic because a lot of those behavioral biases get wiped out at the systemic level because you can imagine sort of an arbitrage condition that wipes out the irrelevance of the inframarginal stupidity. But yeah, I made that considerably <laughs> rapid. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, are we still so doing rapid? rapid? Yeah, let's, let's wrap up with book recommendations. I don't think anybody should work on development for any length of time without reading Seeing Like a State. Hmm. James Scott is like this American Marxist political scientist. At the same time, I think it's one of the most insightful things about development because a large part of the development was about this national development agenda, and the national development agenda very quickly acquired a very deep kind of bureaucratic high modernism, whatever the task to be accomplished of a very modern bureaucracy was the task to accomplish it, and I think that led to a lot of limitations, and it's just surprising because I'm a pretty free market-oriented guy that I'm recommending a book by a <laughs> political scientist, but I think seeing like a state is deeply insightful about the dangers of a given approach, kind of top-down, design-centric, and you know, part of my concern is effective altruism by attempting to identify identifiable interventions that can be done in a top-down way is a little too sus- more susceptible, surprisingly, to the seeing like a state problem mm-hmm. than a group that also tends to have libertarians hanging around it ought to be. Um, so I think seeing like a state. Yeah, and there's a great review of that book on uh, the blog Space Star Codex, which I also highly recommend. Thank you so much for being our guest okay. today. Thanks for inviting me. That was Lance Bridges. Thanks for listening. Now enjoy our theme song, written and performed by Chris Baker. <laughs>